So a few years back, I got to take a summer sabbatical. And when you take a summer sabbatical and you're a priest at a church, the custom usually is to choose a project or something that you'd like to work on or learn or practice, something you normally wouldn't have the time to do. And I decided to take on a project to learn something I've always been curious about but have never done, which is to write a screenplay. So we were living in California at the time, not too far from Los Angeles, and I went ahead and, and endeavored to try. I had the opportunity to talk to people who are professionals who do this for a living, and I learned many things, including one valuable lesson, which is to keep my day job. <laughs> uh, and and I, I did read some of the books. There are some classics out there that help screenwriters write good screenplays, and one of the books taught me that when you're writing about people, when you're creating these characters and they're gonna do and say many things, if you want it to be believable, you have to get really deep inside the minds and the hearts of who these people are. And in order to do so, you need to ask what motivates them. Every time you see a movie or a TV series and there are these characters and they're compelling, some writer has looked at a blank page and worked really hard to figure out what motivates each one of those characters because given any circumstance that you're put into, you, you may assume that anyone would do a certain thing in that circumstance, but that's not the case. Take two different people, put them in the same circumstance, and they will do different things because they have different motivations, different orientations. And it's really a fascinating question. Uh, the screenplay gurus say that uh, with a character, you don't know who the character is based on what they say. You know who they really are only based on what they do. And I'm mindful that I'm standing in Washington, D.C. right now when I share this with you. And interestingly, too, in Washington, D.C., is something that people have had to learn and, and work at to be successful in order to make a difference in the way that they want to make a difference, to know what motivates others. To ask that question, when you have the access to get to a decision maker, what's that person's motivation going to be? And how are you going to convey to them that something is going to align with what they're motivated to seek? So I take this hopefully lifting a veil off of something that is really in front of us all the time as we now look at the parable that's told in the gospel. We've got the rich man and we've got poor Lazarus. And Lazarus is there uh, extremely poor waiting to see if the crumbs will fall from the table of the rich man and he'll have something to eat. Uh, he has sores all over and the highlight of his day appears to be when the dogs come and lick his sores. And that is a picture of his life. And the rich man, and by the way, the way the parable is told, there isn't really judgment against the rich man at this point. It's just the way things are. The rich man has fine clothing, and he eats well, and he has his good life, and he does his thing. And he apparently is aware that Lazarus is there, but he doesn't give him a second thought. Then, of course, the two of them both die around the same time. The rich man goes to Hades where he's being tormented and where it's hot and Lazarus is brought up by the angels to be with Father Abraham up in the good place. Uh, 
And I, I think it's a really important aside to point out that this is not meant to teach us what exactly happens with heaven and hell and when you die. This is meant to teach a deeper truth and to get our attention. And so what ends up happening next is that the rich man, well, he, he's still ordering people around. He says, Lazarus, could you dip your, water, uh, dip your finger in the water and cool my tongue because I'm really hot? He thinks Lazarus is his servant now. Lazarus actually doesn't answer, but Abraham answers for him and says, actually, that is impossible, and also there's a chasm that cannot be crossed right now between you and us where we are. And so he says, well, then why don't you come back from the dead and tell my brothers so that they don't end up in the same situation I'm in? He's still dictating to Lazarus what to do to serve him. And you can see if there was a story arc and the character development is happening, not a lot of character growth has happened for this poor rich man. And he's been through a lot, if you think about it. That chasm, my understanding of what that chasm means, is very relevant. It's a real chasm, and it's a chasm that can't be crossed because it can only be crossed when a heart is changed. The rich man is the one to be pitied. The poor rich man, a man who's never understood what compassion means. He hasn't ever learned what it feels like to care for someone other than himself or his brothers. That's the extent of it. And only when his heart will change, when he will grow, maybe when his motives will evolve, only then could the chasm possibly be crossed. Thinking of motives, I am really heartened uh, with this church. Yesterday we had this fantastic service at 10 o'clock. It was the um, much-anticipated installation service. When you get a new rector once every 25 or 30 years, you do an installation. And uh, you, you bring everybody out and you have great music. And we had almost 600 people filling this space. Not that anyone's counting the numbers. Um, <laughs> That's with apologies to Jay who did the, he was our guest preacher, and he said, don't count the numbers, but we did have a great turnout. <laughs> and everybody at the reception said, don't expect to see very many people tomorrow, but here you are. Thank you for coming. <laughs> um, one of the things we do in these services is there's a kind of a ceremonial gift-giving practice that happens right in the, in the middle. And sometimes it's five or six symbolic gifts that represent different parts of the life and the ministry of any congregation. And as we were putting the service together, and I was working with a few others to write it, um, we were looking at all the parts of the life of St. John's, and we had 20 gifts brought, and each one representing the ministries that we do here. It represents the motives that this church has. Motives that go beyond just self-preservation, but motives that go towards living the life that is, we're called into by God, a life of spreading love and light and making a difference in this city and in this world, in Jesus' name. And I think about the generations of 200-plus people who have served, who've sat in these very pews.
pews, the boxes that came before these pews, and what their lives must have been like. And I hope and pray that we share a thread that has been continual um, across this park for all these years, all these generations that have been here. And it's not just about what is said, but what is done, which grows out of our center. The most interesting part of many movies or TV series or, or even plays that you see, dramas, are those moments when the lead character suddenly is faced with a decision. And often what happens is everything gets stripped away, the crutches that they've been relying on, the illusions that have, they have been holding on to that they think have been serving them well. And those things all get stripped away and in the colloquial way of, colloquial way of putting it, that's the come to Jesus moment for these people. And that's when you find out who they really are. And that's when they have the opportunity to grow or not. To align their motives with motives that are higher. And so we don't have to go through what that rich man went through. Someone has come back from the dead to show us the way and to teach us the good news. So it's not just about what we say or even what we do, but how we orient our hearts as individuals and as a church, not merely on those things of the earth, but on the motives that come from above. Amen.